0: I'm going to get around to reading our scripture lesson uh, this morning after I tell you the story of why I picked this particular scripture text, and it has everything to do with Brianna as our youth director, agreeing to provide during the chili cook-off and the auction a sheet for those to sign up and buy a particular subject that you would like for me to preach on. I did this in Atlanta, and the subject that my friend picked was donuts. Uh It turned out to be a pretty good sermon, by the way. I'll give it to you later, maybe. Uh, and, but I was a little anxious about this one, especially when I heard that Trip Means was the one, he may have been the only one to, to bid on it, but he was the one who bought me. And so this was four or five weeks ago, and uh, when I heard that Trip had, had bought the subject, I asked him what it was going to be. I don't know yet," he said. "I'll let you know. Well, don't wait too long. Okay. So every week, Trip, what's the what's the subject? I don't know yet. I'll let you know. Easter Sunday last week rolls around, Trip. I'm preaching on this next Sunday. What's the subject? I'll let you know. I tell you what. Let me know by tomorrow. So at eleven fifty-nine p.m. on Monday night, just kidding, it was 11, excuse me, 5.59 that afternoon, I got the subject, and it was procrastination. (laughs) Now, I have never been accused of that. Well, in fact, maybe a little. Our sermon title today was supposed to be Procrastination but I didn't get it to Terry in time to have the change made. So just go with what we have. I have a lot of personal experience in this subject, but I have never gotten around to preaching about it, at least not directly. Today, we are going to meet this subject head on. Well, in a moment, I will tell you the story of my accountant, who, who who claims that I may be the most guilty procrastinator of all when it comes to turning in my taxes. When I found out that you didn't need to get them in until October the 15th, then it became October the 7th, and then maybe the 9th, and then maybe the 11th. And Anyway, he got them done. And it, what a great opportunity, you see, not to have to deal with things early when you can just do it in October. My maternal grandfather, who never graduated from high school but became a very successful businessman with Sexton Foods, sat me down at my high school graduation uh, experience uh, when I was visiting their house after I graduated. said, now I'm going to give you some advice, Steve. Okay, uh, granddaddy, what is it? He said, Never, ever use the word get around to it. Do today what can be done today and don't let it wait until tomorrow. And as he lectured me about the issues around procrastinating and putting things off, he then reached into his pocket and pulled out one of those little wooden size, coin size wooden chips on which it was written uh, to it. And he said, "Now I give you a round to it. Always keep it with you, so that you don't—you can never need to say until I get around to it, because now you already have one." <laughs> At which point, I put it in my pocket, like I did with many of my treasures, uh, and it fell out of the hole in my pocket that I never got around to sewing up. Now, before I get around to the scripture lesson, let me also share uh, that there's this other personal malady that uh, infects us besides procrastination, and that's precrastination. If you've never heard of that, procrastination is putting things off, delaying, or postponing something, but precrastination is obsessively getting it done way too soon. The anxiety of the ending hangs over us uh, uh, so powerfully that we just want to get it done and get it over with. And while this may seem like a good thing, the tasks that really matter in life, like love and learning how to grow up and forgiveness and reconciliation and spiritual growth, should never succumb to procrastination. It takes a long time to grow in those ways. Things that matter should never be done quickly. So I think about it every character in the Bible, except for maybe David, started late in life when they heard God's call to go and do what God told them to do. They had to season. They had to ripen. And Israel wandered in the wilderness for 40 years before they made it to the promised land. There was some seasoning that was needed. Precrastination, getting to the end too early, may be just another way for us to avoid what really matters. Avoid the depths and the mysteries of life. Avoid the pain and the suffering of life well, I'm just going to get through grief as soon as I can and get on with it. It doesn't work. Without wrestling with the demons on the dark side, just like Jacob and Job wrestled with their own demon angels, the result will be like a mud puddle two feet wide and one half inch deep instead of the life-giving Deeply flowing waters of the river of grace. Sometimes what looks like procrastination may, in fact, just be patience. In fact, patience means waiting in pain from pathos. Jesus waited until he was 30 to go public, he only had three years of ministry. God seems to wait, too. Does God procrastinate? Certainly it seems that way. When the people of Israel had been exiled into Babylon, the psalmist cried out, How long, O Lord? How long? For it seemed like God would never act again. And God did, but it was two generations later. To sit in the mystery of uncertainty without tying things up, I think, is the best definition I know of faith. To sit in the mystery of uncertainty without tying it up. Faith is not something one has as much as one seeks and grows. Now, I'm going to get to the Bible reading in a minute. But let me also say that procrastination may not be the best strategy either, even when things are meaningful. Most of us put off things because we don't want to wrestle with them. We want to avoid it. It is uncomfortable. It might be A conflict, it might be some other reason. We just don't want to work, who knows. But the best strategy I have found when it comes to things of importance, that is to say, deeply meaningful human things that matter the most, the best strategy I know is to begin the process knowing that it may take a long time. Sooner or later, you have to step into the process of beginning that growing part. Maybe maybe it's a process of learning how to be responsible, or maybe it's a process of learning how to control your emotions, or maybe it's a process of reconciling with someone you've broken with, or maybe it's a process of trying to find sobriety, or maybe it's a process, there could be a thousand different really meaningful, important things that we need to do. And the job is to begin the process. Do not procrastinate on the beginning, but do not expect a quick ending. In most cases, the sooner we start, the better. This is especially true when it comes to love and hope and faith and relationships. These take time to ripen. This is so important that that nothing else matters, I think. Especially not our work. Our work, which seems to give us a facade of busyness, that a sense of importance, like the return on investment, that we're this machine-like agent whose job it is to simply produce, produce, produce. And whatever it is we produce, the more hours it takes for us to produce it, the better. This is the culture we live in, and this culture, you see, undermines the very process of our coming to terms with who we are as a child of God. I can't tell you the number of times I speak with older men one of whom I am fast becoming, it seems, who share with me their deep regret that all they did in their life was work. They were successful by cultural standards. They devoted all of their time and energy 60 hours or more a week, and they had convinced themselves that they had made it until the time came when they looked around or they had time for it. And their wife was gone, and their children didn't care, and their friends were off doing their whole thing, and then they retired, and what they retired into was a vacuum with nothing to move into except the nostalgia, the sad, tragic nostalgia of all the many years they worked in the past. There was no secondary passion. There was no art. There was no aesthetic. There was no poetry. There was no friendship. There was no deeper part of life that mattered to them while they were going through this. And you see, life is a continuum, and and we can't just, like, do this and fall off and expect something new to be born if this thing before hasn't been being born during the process. That part of us into becoming who we were created to be, the image of God is what matters. That's our purpose. Work certainly helps fulfill that, but work is not our purpose. Whatever we do in work is simply to help us discover who we are as God's child, to fulfill the wholeness in us that God sees us to be. In the end that looks like Christ, that kind of kindness and love and compassion. In an article in the Harvard Business Review Clay Christensen wrote over the years I've watched the fates of my Harvard Business School classmates from 1979 unfold. I've seen more and more of them come to reunions unhappy, divorced, and alienated from their children. I can guarantee you that not a single one of them graduated with the deliberate strategy of getting divorced and raising children who would become estranged from them. And yet a shocking number of them implemented that strategy. The reason? They didn't keep the purpose of their lives front and center as they decided how to spend their time, talents, and energy. The purpose of our lives, of your life, the purpose. Begin with the end in mind, Stephen Covey says. Begin at the end of your life and work back. What is it that you would like to say was the purpose and meaning of my existence? And if it does not have love in it, we are off track. In 1938, the same year that Superman debuted, Harvard, I know it sounds like I'm picking on Harvard, but it's Harvard. Harvard began what would become the greatest, longest-running study of well-being in history. But the financial backing of the dime store magnate William Grant It was called the Study of Adult Development, or the Grant Study, and it set out to understand those who seemed destined to do well. They had been carefully chosen, 268 white males. That says something in itself, doesn't it? Harvard in 1938, not anyone of color, and only male. Maybe they had no persons of color or female students, I don't know, but anyway, they picked 268 white male students who they deemed to be intellectually, physically, and emotionally sound. Many, but not most, had enjoyed a privileged background, yet one way or another, each of these men had made it to Harvard, and they, as a group, seemed to be moving toward a successful life. Some became distinguished professors, professionals, lawyers, senators. Ben Bradley, the former head of the Washington Post, John F. Kennedy were two of the 268 men. They studied everything about these men from what they ate to how long they slept for how much exercise they got. They did blood tests, they did psychological tests, they did warshock tests on these men. Back and forth and back and forth. Every single year, they would check in and study these men and where they were at that particular time. Yet the analysis of the person of each one of those men did not turn out quite like they expected. Welcome back, guys. Did Catherine help you figure out the purpose of your life If it doesn't have singing in it, don't listen to them. They undertook this analysis to find out what a normal person would actually be like, but they were actually really trying to discover what it looked like to be a super achiever normal person. And the summary of what exactly happened to these men as they followed them from the age of 19 into their 90s and still goes like this. More than 80% served in World War II in the 1940s. Most became married and started families from the 50s through the 80s. Their careers and their relationships advanced or in some cases retreated. In the 1990s and beyond came retirement and old age. Along the way, the exams continued. They underwent personality testing, they sat for interviews, even the spouses and children were contacted. Not one of the Grant men enjoyed a charmed life. Every struggled, everyone struggled in some way or another, and not one of these innate characteristics the researchers had been so keen to record predicted what would happen. Beyond a certain point, higher intelligence didn't matter. Turns out it was alcoholism that broke up more families than anything else. By age 50, almost a third of the men had met the criteria for a mental disorder such as depression or anxiety at one time or another, a third. It baffled the study's founder. The most radical finding of all was revealed when the Grant men were in their 90s. When researchers had the benefit of their whole lives to work with, by far the most important influence on whether their lives had turned out well was really never considered to begin with as part of the study. The most important influence was love and relationships. That's what determined how well these men did in life. Conclusion became clear. Those who had love in their lives flourished at home and at work, while those who went without did not fare so well. Sometimes the men had received a warm, loving childhood, but not always. It just wasn't about the parents. Love can take many forms through siblings, or grandparents, or teachers, children, for many it was the children they had who taught them what love was about. The truth that the lives of the Grant men exposed is one that its founders never expected to find. After 75 years and $20 million expended on the Grant study, they discovered the one thing that matters. They didn't need to do the study. The Bible is clear love. Happiness, joy, is about love and relationships. 1 John says that God is love. And those who abide in God abide in love and God abides in them. God is love. This is what Jesus came to show and tell us. Not just to tell us to embody love to incarnate for us to be that very presence of God's love and for all of those that Jesus encountered who had not experienced any of that love because they had been outcast for some reason maybe maybe they had skin disease maybe they were the wrong color maybe maybe they were gentiles maybe they were outcast for any other reason Jesus went to those people especially just so that they would experience and know God's love. And everything he did and everything he said was for us, for them and us to know God's love. Even the last act of his life, which was to give himself up on the cross. Not to satisfy God's need for a sacrifice. Hear me about that. God's need for a sacrifice is not the point nor do I think that's the issue. The reason Jesus did it is because we desperately need to know God loves us. And when you give yourself up for that, there's no greater gift you can give. Jesus always talked about the kingdom of God The kingdom of heaven, and he's not talking about what happens when we die and go there. He's talking about how we live now and how that kingdom of God in heaven is present with us now and how we are able to live into that love and kingdom now. God does not procrastinate on that gift. It is ever before us. We do not have to wait for it. We just simply have to begin taking it into us. Accepting it, letting it be with us, that place, that space, that, that presence with us, a place of loving kindness and gratitude and forgiveness and reconciliation and intimacy and justice and real relationships built on the hard work of God's love and gift to us. Told you I'd get around to the text. This is the text. It comes from Matthew. It's known as the parable of the ten maidens, or the wise and foolish maidens. The urgency of this should not be missed. Then the kingdom of heaven will be like this: ten bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, and five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they had procrastinated. Unprepared, they took no oil with them, but the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. As the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout, Look, here he is, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up and lit their lamps. The foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, No, there will not be enough for you and for us. You had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly I tell you, I don't know you. Keep awake, therefore. Keep awake, for you know neither the day nor the hour. When it comes to waking up to the reality of who we are and whose we are and the purpose we have in life, do not wait. It may be too late. When it comes to becoming a human being, learning how to love and listen and relate and live into faith and forgiveness and and joy, do not wait. Fish or cut bait. Amen. Amen.